The purpose of this episode is to explore common health and well-being strengths and challenges for people with Down syndrome. The content discussed here is not meant as a substitution for direct medical care with relevant professionals. Rather, we hope to share new and little-known information so that families and supporters can be well-informed when accessing medical care. Your child or student's medical or educational professionals may have recommended different practices or procedures that are specific to them. Do not modify or change your child or student's treatment or therapy plan without consulting with your care provider. Today on the Lowdown in the Afternoon Podcast, dietitian John Medlin gives us the lowdown on nutrition for people with Down syndrome. Over to you, Hannah and Marilla. Thanks, Jody. Hi, everyone. My name is Marla Folden, and I'm an SLP and co-host of the Lowdown Podcast. I'm joined by my colleague, Hannah Mahmood, who's an OT and the co-host of this podcast as well. Hey, Hannah. Hi, Marla. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. I'm uh, really excited about this topic. I know I say this with every episode, but this is this is a really good one because I think it's going to be some very valuable information for our families. Yeah, you've been really waiting for this one. Mm-hmm. Definitely makes up for the terrible weather outside. So yes, exactly. We'll just enjoy this conversation instead. Yes. Yeah. Uh, before we continue on with the episode, we'd love for our listeners out there to hit the subscribe button and leave a review on however, whatever podcast platform they use. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember to check out the episode pages because we put important things in there. Today on The Lowdown, we're talking about an area that probably does not get enough attention for the population of people with Down syndrome, in part because there's such a large number of areas that are urgent for this group. Um, and in part, it's just not well known. And the topic is nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a really important topic because, I mean, nutrition plays such a role in so many different aspects of our individual's lives. So it's not only the the growth and the health and the physiology, but honestly, you know, things like toileting are affected by nutrition, things like yeah. behavior and sleep. So it really impacts all corners of their lives. No, it's so true. And when you think about a young person with or with without DS growing towards independence, a big piece of independence is being able to prepare and eat mm-hmm. foods that are healthy and complete. So just like any other person, these healthy foods might not be the first choice on the menu. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, you <laughs> yeah. know, there's a lot of education. There's a lot of room for growth for any young person. And certainly people with Down syndrome are part of that group. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Today, we're going to be chatting about, you know, how we build these healthy habits around eating and nutrition. And we have Joan Medlin with us today to find out. Yeah. So Joan Medlin is a registered dietitian and nutritionist and uh, living and working in the U.S. Uh, She's been working in the area of health promotion and nutrition for people with Down syndrome for over 25 years. So she is definitely a great expert to have on today. Um, Joan has also authored two books specifically for this community. Um, The first one is the Down Syndrome Nutrition Handbook. A Guide to Healthy Lifestyles, and the second, Cooking by Color, which is Recipes for Independence. Uh, Joan turned her focus to the community of people with Down syndrome after her son Andy was born. Andy experiences both Down syndrome and autism. Um, welcome, Joan, to the Lowdown Podcast. We're so delighted to have you with us today. Well, thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, as a tradition of the Lowdown podcast, we uh, ask our guests five secret questions. So it gives us a chance to get to know you a little better as well as our audience. Are you game for that? I sure am. Awesome. Go for it. Okay, great. All right. Question number one. What is your family's favorite dish to cook or to eat? Boy, it depends on who you talk to. We each yeah. have something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Andy, who's my son with Down syndrome, one of his favorites is Swedish meatballs. Oh. So those are homemade and gluten-free because he has celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would say the favorite dish for my husband for me to make for him is lasagna. Oh, yeah. And then for my older son, who's now moved out and on his own, when he was living with us, um, he's my picky eater. And I had to create this dish called Beefy Mac. Oh, okay. Yeah. It it doesn't really have a recipe and it got healthier as he got older. But yeah, it started out because um, someone had done a naughty, naughty um, lesson in second grade about good food, bad food. Oh. And all the kids in the class realized all the foods that they kind of, you know, like, like the yeah. candy and all that was in the bad food category. And so he was like boycotting the good food category. <laughs> so he wouldn't eat my lunches that I sent. And then I said, well, what's your favorite lunch that you get at school? And it was something called Yankee Doodle Noodle Casserole. Got it. So I looked that up and came up with Beefy Mac. Nice. Excellent. Some of those dishes are the best ones are the ones that don't have a recipe sometimes. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Fridge emptiers is what fridge I Fridge emptiers, that. exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, that's fried rice. Fried rice is the Oh, fridge, that's a good one. Empty. Yeah. Mm. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Question number two. Um, I mean, let's just say COVID is all gone and you are about to go for a weekend getaway. Where is your favorite destination? Only for a weekend? Well, I mean, or- I've been home for nine months, <laughs> only a weekend. <laughs> Okay, how about a two-week vacation? Where would you two go? Two-week vacation. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have a girlfriend's trip planned um, to go to New Zealand and go on a biking oh. trip. So I don't know if it's my favorite place yet, but um, it's it's one of it's my birthday trip that we've Amazing. been kind of planning and hoping for, and we're hoping that COVID goes away enough that we can mm-hmm. go to the COVID-free land of mm-hmm. New Zealand. Yeah. Well, from what I've heard from people that have gone to New Zealand, it might end up being your favorite place because everyone has amazing things to say about that. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Right. Well, you'll find out soon, hopefully. Uh-huh. Right. Hopefully, well, hopefully. and for a weekend trip, if I were to do a weekend trip mm-hmm. um, right now, it would be to drive north, pick, I live in Oregon, mm-hmm. drive north, pick up my son and daughter-in-law and head to Victoria. That's the place we've ah. been wanting to, to explore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, question number three. Do you have a de-stress routine after a busy work day? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So so I have two types of de-stress routines. (laughs) A typical busy work day, um, it would just be to... um, spend some time with Andy after I leave my, my little room here and then, uh, in the watch TV with my husband in the evening and I knit. Um, if it's a real stressful day, then, then a walk is required. Mm -hmm. Um, and that started during when Andy was in school during IEP meetings, I I learned that walking is the way to get it all figured out. Um, and I problem solve and walk and listen to happy music. Walking is my number one go-to as well. Mm-hmm. Podcasts and walking for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Question number four. What are you currently reading? Ooh. Um, 
Well, I don't read books very often because I spend so much time reading during the day. But and mm-hmm. when before COVID, I would um, um, travel forty five minutes both ways each way to work. And currently, I am reading or listening to because I'm in the car. Mm-hmm. I have to get the name of it right. Um, I am currently listening to The Lost Girls of Paris. Okay. Novel? It is a novel, yes. So I I use Audible, so they're always printed books first. Um, But yeah, I have have quite the the Audible library. Great. I know. I love Audible. Yeah. Good way to pass a long car trip, for sure. For sure, yeah. Well, you know, 45, it's 90 minutes in the car total, so it works out really well. Yeah, great. Okay. Okay, our last question. What is one skill that you think everyone should have? I would love it if everyone had the skill to see life through someone else's eyes. Mm. Love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That perspective taking. Mm -hmm. Because we all see the same thing differently. Mm -hmm. And the best support is when you can see it through the eyes of the person you're supporting, Mm -hmm. as opposed to through your eyes and what you want. Yeah. Oh, couldn't have said it better said. myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for indulging in the, uh, in that. That was really great. That was pretty painless. It's good. Yeah. I, yeah. Exactly. That's what I thought. <laughs> That's what think, but everyone panics. <laughs> yeah. I think it's. I think we maybe need to re-term it secret questions. But I think I like that. <laughs> no, no. It's good to put us on on the hot seat. It's exactly. good. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Great. So let's kind of dive into our topic today. And what I was hoping to do was um, first kind of touch on some of the medical physiology aspect of diet and nutrition, and then we can move over to some of the treatment and therapy approaches. Um, So why is diet management so difficult for individuals with Down syndrome? Well, it's not really as difficult as we want to think it is. Um, I think that if I had to boil it down, it wouldn't even be specific to Down syndrome. The, the, The biggest key thing that's difficult for everyone has to do with the fact that we don't learn basic nutrition from the get go. Mm-hmm. So then you, you're in a situation where you're concerned about it because there are some physiological things that, that play in at times. And, and if you don't really understand just the basics of nutrition, what the role of, of the macronutrients and the micronutrients are, um, not in great detail. You don't have to be an expert. There's a big, broad, overarching category. And if, if you don't really have that and understand how that can affect behavior as well as physiological issues, then, then it becomes a struggle because you're having to learn this basic part as well as this more intricate part all at once and, and your, your focus changes. And I think, I think I do a lot of just general nutrition education. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned that it does affect behavior as well. Oh, absolutely. I would say I do more behavior consulting than I do actual physiological issues because the behavior is usually how we learn what the physiological problems are. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. So what are some of the key nutritional deficiencies that you generally see with individuals with Down syndrome? So, so, so we're starting at the, at the micro-e piece. <laughs> um, so 
generally speaking, um, what I tend to say when I'm doing my workshops is mind the micros. And the micros that we're going to be looking at are things like calcium um, and making sure that's married to vitamin D, because if you don't have D, then the calcium can't be absorbed. Um, And then looking at fiber um, as another of the micronutrients. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, the B vitamins Mm -hmm. and it kind of depends on what's going on. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Um, it depends on if, for instance, if a person has celiac disease or they've chosen for whatever reason to follow a modified diet that includes being Mm gluten-free, um, then I'm going to have a lot to say about the B vitamins and iron, um, because those things aren't aren't required, at least in the States, but and I'm sure Canada is very similar, to be enriched in the flowers that you use that are the substitute flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. if, yeah. Mm. So if someone's dairy-free, that's also not required to be enriched with mm. the, the calcium and D um, and the riboflavin, um, all of those things. So the, the B vitamins, the calcium and D are often things that are missing and iron as well, actually, because our, our wheat flours are enriched with some iron and some folate. So, so those things become a potential issue for a vitamin deficiency that we don't see typically in the general population of anyone. Yeah, but once, and this is true for anybody who has gone gluten-free and dairy-free. Um, the same would be true if you choose to be a strict vegan. I'd be looking at, are you getting enough iron and protein um, mm-hmm. and, and B12? So so it's, it's a tough kind of question to answer because Down syndrome globally, there aren't really major nutrition, nutrient, micronutrient deficiencies to look for. Um, we want to make sure we have zinc and selenium so that we're boosting our immune system. Um, we want to make sure that we're getting adequate omega-3s um, because they help with a lot of things. We're learning a lot about the omega-3s and vitamin E in particular, um, just for all of us around brain health and, and other pieces, um, anti-inflammatory qualities of the omegas and and the vitamin E. Um, vitamin C, only if, if uh, you're... Um, needing more calcium and D so that that helps with the absorption. Um, but probably the biggest one is fiber. Awesome. Hmm. Okay. Um, so Joan, can you, you mentioned a little bit about the micronutrients. Did you want to tell our listeners a little bit about some of the macronutrients as well and some of the things to look out for in that way or? Sure. Um, let me just kind of go to, this is the, the general nutrition piece. This is the biggest yeah. general nutrition piece that I talk about is the macronutrients mm-hmm. and their impact on behavior, to be honest. Um, so let me just ask the two of you, if you are supporting a young person who is under five, mm-hmm. how many hours between meals or snacks would be recommended? Recommended or what happens in my house? No, no, no. No, no, no. Recommended. Like, like if you're talking to the nutritionist, you're going to be perfect. How many hours should you be looking at, you know, when should you be looking at eating? I just ate at at nine o'clock. What time should we be thinking about food for our little one? I'm going to guess here. I have never seen a nutritionist, but I'm going to guess two and a half to three hours. 
How about you, Hina? Um, I mean, I, I do not have kids, but from my experience, maybe I would say four. Okay. Now, before I answer you, how many hours between, uh, we just ate at nine, how, what's the longest amount of time that you want to start thinking about eating for an adult? Teenager and adult. For myself, three and a half to four hours. <laughs> I best be eaten. Yeah, I actually cranky. can last much longer, to be honest. Yeah, I'm just weird experienced that way. In, the, in the fasting. Yeah, because I do fasting, so I can last like longer Wrong. amounts of time between eating. So I might just be a weird anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, 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 the general physiological answers are for those guys who are, say, even I would even go as far as eight to 10 and under, um, it would be th- about three hours. So at three hours, you want to be thinking about eating. For for folks who are older and for adults, so for our middle schoolers, teenage and adults, no more than five hours. <laughs> and what happens is our body has a, a blood glucose curve, right? And what you eat, and we'll get into how important what you eat is in a second, but what you eat should be in a perfect world, it's this wonderful bell curve, mm-hmm. okay? And if you don't eat by the time your body uses up that, food that you've eaten, which for little ones is about three hours. And for older folks, it's, it's around five, your blood glucose will drop. So what happens when you're hangry? Nothing good. Right. (laughs) Right. So you start to see some quote unquote behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you're not eating and you're over hungry, you start to you start to have some behavior. Now, how many of your three-year-olds, eight-year-olds, teenagers know to tell you, hey man, I'm hungry? Not many. Yeah. No. How about yeah. you? You know, I mean, I don't always recognize that I'm hungry and I'm starting to be really grumpy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so so in the world of a person who's receiving supports, like our folks with Down syndrome, um, those behaviors get labeled as behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So, so many times the first conversation I have, like I'll be called in because somebody's having issues and a meltdown say, or they're having behavior issues. I've been in many an IEP meeting, for instance, where I will say, well, let's talk about the morning. And the team's looking at me like, eh, I say, what time does your son or daughter get up? Oh, we get up at this time. What time do you eat breakfast? So they get up at say six, mm-hmm. they have breakfast right away. At mm-hmm. between 6 and 6.30, right? You know, maybe 6.45 at the most. And and then you say, so why do you eat right away? Well, because I want all the mess to be on his pajamas and not on his clothes. Well, okay, so then, then when does the bus come? Well, the bus doesn't come until about 8, 7.30 or 8, but it takes us that amount of time to go through our routine of waking up and, and then changing our clothes because we're learning how to get dressed and, or getting all our stuff ready for school. I mean, we've got our groove and we got to do our thing. So the bus comes at eight. All right, we're already at two and a half hours or two hours. We'll say two hours. We're already at two hours. So the bus comes, or we're at an hour and a half, comes at eight because they ate at 6.30. Bus comes at eight. And then um, it takes up to an hour to get to school. Like they, that's the yeah. rule here in the States. They have an hour to get them to school. So they get to, they get to school 
and my, my timing's a little off because they're getting to school a little late, <clears throat> but let's say they get to school at nine um, and then and then they're in third grade and we're, we're real students in third grade. So we don't snack anymore at third grade. And so we're going right into school and lunch isn't until 11. What just happened? We went a really long time and that person probably needed a snack right about the time they got to school. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, but they're in third grade and they're not, they're not doing that. Now, some schools have school breakfast and you can set that up as a modification, but they're wondering why this person is having a behavior all the time, you know, aggressive behaviors at about 10 o'clock, 1030. Yeah. So, so it becomes a nutrition issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why nutrition affects everything, right? Yeah. Um, So within that bell curve, what we know about the body is that you need a little bit of carbohydrate, protein, and fat every time you sit down to eat. Mm-hmm. So I have this rule of thumb that I use is that is give me three of the five food groups at every meal and I will consider it balanced. I don't care what those three things are. Mm-hmm. So I have some people putting, they, they test me, right? So they take like a tortilla and they put sushi on it or so I mean I don't know they do strange things to see if I'll if I'll agree and I say do you want to eat that and then when they say no they don't really want to eat that and I said then make me something you want to eat because I'll sign off on that yeah Uh, but what it what happens is if you have three of the five food groups you always have a little bit of carbohydrate a little bit of protein a little bit of fat so what your body does is your body the first thing your body uses for energy won't surprise anybody is the simple carbohydrates the sugars Mm-hmm. Right. And then the next thing that it uses is the more complex carbohydrates. So your fresh fruit or um, a piece of broccoli has a little bit of carbohydrate in it. You know, the, the, the things that you have to chew and digest a little bit to get to the natural sugar that's in it. Mm-hmm. So that's the next piece of energy and your, <clears throat> your blood glucose level is starting to go up. You get to the top of the curve and that's when the the little tiny bit of glucose that's available in protein becomes available to you and it takes you over the top of the curve. And then on the way down, there's a teeny tiny amount of glucose available in the fats that you eat that helps you come down that curve really slowly. So if you're omitting any one part of those those uh, macronutrients, then you've got a really jagged curve. So if all you're eating is carbohydrate, you're going to go up and then you're going to crash down. It's not going to last you that three or five hour span that you need. Mm -hmm. So that's that's why I'm I'm really key on balance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Does the I mean, so you're talking about the blood glucose curve. Like, is there a difference in the metabolic rate for individuals with Down syndrome in terms of how they process foods that they eat? Or I don't that- have any research that would confirm yeah. or deny that comment. Okay. Um, okay. And and that's what I go to is I go to the research. Um, and there's nothing that will help us with that piece. What I do know is that um, people who experience Down syndrome do have a slower motility rate mm-hmm. through their gut. Yeah. So it, it takes longer for it to get through. But but it really, when we say that, we're talking more about the waste product involved as opposed to the nutrients and the processing of the nutrients. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What I also know is they need less um, when it comes to weight balance, you know, your, your weight management piece mm-hmm. of it. Um, but I don't think that that's going to be tied to how they process actual nutrients for energy. 
That's good to know. Great. And then, so you were mentioning that our individuals with Down syndrome have low motility, um, largely, I'm assuming, due to the low tone as well. Um, are there any other differences in how they digest food um, or the digestive system or the anatomical aspects of their digestive system? I don't think there's big ones that I would I would call out that are global. Um, I think that a lot of the things that we see that are related to um, the digestive system in Down yeah. syndrome um, is is really all tied to that low motility, that low muscle tone. So if you think about it as as we have low muscle tone, and and that's not just in our arms and our legs; it's in every part of our muscles. So um, the gut is a long tube. And we and it pushes through in what's called paracelsis, which is like a think of it like a big um, wave at the at the stadium. When mm-hmm. one part squeezes, the next part squeezes, the next part squeezes. Yeah. So they're not squeezing as as shut as most people. So that's what the low muscle tone does. It doesn't. It's not as efficient. Yeah. In doing so, things get left behind. And in doing so, that then raises your risk of um, reflux disease, mm-hmm. um, esophagitis from that, and constipation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there isn't a, it's not a physiological nutritional difference so much as it is the, the low muscle tone contributes yeah. to all of those things. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense for sure. Um, so let's talk uh, about water intake. So this is a huge challenge from what I've observed for our individuals with Down syndrome <laughs> for many, many reasons. I, I continue to be surprised by how many of them drink very little water throughout their day. Um, why do you think that is? And what are some of your go-to strategies to maybe encourage more water intake? So I look at it more as fluid than I do water. Yep. Um, and... Because I think people tend to think if I talk about only water, that I've got to drink this water and it doesn't taste very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's our number one thing mm-hmm. is, is that it doesn't taste very good. But then other things that taste good have an awful lot of calories. Yeah. So, you know, I've met people who've, who've compensated, say, by um, I, I don't drink water, but I drink Gatorade instead. And it's really good for me and I'm going to make muscles. Okay. Yep. Well, and that's how it's marketed. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. They're they're electrolytes and all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's not that it's a bad drink, but it's it's got Gatorade actually has more sugar in it, high fructose corn syrup type sugar, than a can of pop. Mm -hmm. So that becomes the other issue with it. So we kind of have to weigh those things out. So we look for ways to make um, low calorie, non-calorie drinks taste better, mm-hmm. um, adding some fruit to it, um, making it kind of fun. We look for other foods that have fluid in it, like watermelon and melon and pineapple. Um, so I look, I, I really build off what people like to eat to just sort of help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then for some, sometimes just, you know, there's, sometimes it's just how to get a routine going. Um, I had, I had one young man is very fun. He had his support worker, um, with him and we were chatting, well, how are we going to do this? And, and the support worker said, you know what? I need to, I need to drink more too. Everything you say, I have yeah. that issue, which yeah. is kind of fun because then the person with Down syndrome goes, Oh, you, <laughs> you know, yeah, and absolutely. because we're really more alike than different. Right. Yeah. 
So he's saying the same thing and he's learning basic nutrition at the same time. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is they, they came up with a drinking game. So, so they had these six cups of water and they had to finish these six cups of water and they had a number of ways to do it. They did water pong. Um, (laughs) Right. So every kind of drinking game you can think of, he put, he put with the water and they had so much fun. And then it became more of a, I want, I want water to drink. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a big part of it. Water can become something that you crave once you get going again, it's the routine and you get used to it. Some people like it super cold and that's important. And some people like it warm. My father likes, well, my mother liked to drink hot water. Um, you know, you, most of us would put a tea bag in it, um, <laughs> but she would just drink the hot water. My dad likes room temperature water and I like ice water. Yeah. So yeah. It, it just kind of depends. But once you get used to that being the thing that fuels you, you it, it gets better. But it's the habit creation yeah. that's the hardest part. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think if there's a culture at home of everyone drinking water, it's a little bit easier for that individual to follow through with it. If they're the only ones that have to do it, it's really not that much fun. And I, yeah. And I love that you said that you can make drinking water fun, whether it's games oh, yeah. or flavors. <laughs> no, they were way too much fun. I learned a lot <laughs> from them. <laughs> How many you, you did? What, what kind of game did you play? Yeah. <laughs> I like that water pong instead of beer pong. Yeah, you know, and, and, and we don't even talk about beer pong. We just talk about water pong. It's all good. Yeah. They had one where they were hiding the glasses of water. That was fun, too. So they were, they were these were little bottles of water that, that, um, that I got to hide all over the house for them because they said it was no fun when one person knew where they were. So <laughs> I visited once and I was hiding bottles of water around the house. And, yeah. and once you found it, you had to drink it. And yeah. whoever had the most water won. <laughs> well, you know, perfect, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Game. Make it a game, right? You know, yeah. sometimes it's about having the cute water bottle with mm-hmm. the right character. Absolutely. Or or the right nozzle. Okay. You know, I yes. I like the kind that you pull up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. My husband hates those. You know, my son wants a straw. And yeah. and so Andy, Andy will drink drink just about anything if I put it in a Starbucks cup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm-hmm. we do that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now that we can't go into Starbucks, it's like really special to have a Starbucks cup. Exactly. And honestly, I think that this goes for typically developing people too, because I found that my water t- intake has increased greatly if I'm using like, you know, a bottle with like a reusable, like a straw. Mm-hmm. When I have to open and close and, you know, for, it, it doesn't make sense, but it's just, it's so one less step that I have to go through for some reason. And I'm drinking way more this way. So it kind of, you have to find the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. Right. To, yeah. And and for some people it's, it's taking that and then putting maybe just a little bit of juice in it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's yeah. the other thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Or a- yeah frozen blueberries or whatever right have that little cage in there yes 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 that's the the infuser infuser. yes you know and you can say it's just like you get when you stay at the hilton because they have that infuser big water thing in the Mm -hmm. lobby Mm -hmm. so the more special you can make it the the easier it is to create that habit but then be prepared to support that habit yeah so if you make if you use a water infuser, be be prepared to have that available all the time. It's not fair to create a habit and then not have the tools. Mm-hmm. For sure. That's good a really point. good point. Yeah. And I mean, overall, so we know that you mentioned this uh, just a little while ago that constipation 
is an issue and having working, you know, as an OT, I work with so many parents with toileting and constipation mm-hmm. is always number one on the list of things to look out for. Mm-hmm. So we know that you're increasing your water intake will help with the constipation. But mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about um, the connection? I mean, we know that we need fiber to help with bowel movements, but can you talk a little bit about the importance of nutritional fiber and things like that to help with our individuals with constipation, given that they also have low tone? Mm -hmm. Um, So fiber plays a a couple of different roles. There's two kinds of fiber. Um, One is the insoluble fiber. So in other words, it doesn't dissolve and it's, it's, primarily a waste product. And the other is a soluble fiber that absorbs liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you hear about it, um, most of us hear about it primarily as a heart health um, tool, the soluble mm-hmm. fiber. So that's the kind of fiber that is in Miralax, for instance, yeah, the cilium. Metamucil. Yeah. Yes, yes. And not Miralax, Metamucil, that's what I was thinking of. Um, so, so it absorbs the water. So both of those types of fiber play a big role in um, gut motility and constipation. So the role of the insoluble fiber, which is what you get, say, from um, an apple peel or um, broccoli or I like broccoli um, or, or other foods that you consider to be high fiber naturally, mm-hmm. um, the, the role of that insoluble fiber is to scrape the edges of your gut to get all of the stuff. Mm-hmm. as it's going out. So it collects mm-hmm. things as it goes. Okay. And then the role of the soluble, soluble fiber is to, is to give, give that waste product a soft bulk as opposed mm-hmm. to a hard bulk. So it absorbs water and it makes it soft enough that you can push it through. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the insoluble fiber will make it hard. So if you don't have enough fluid and you don't have enough insoluble fiber to hold on to it, then it becomes this hard brick and it's really hard to pass. Um, and then if you have the soluble fiber, then it's a little bit softer and it, it keeps a shape. Mm-hmm. And that shape is super important to push it through. You didn't mm-hmm. know I was I was an expert on waste products, did you? <laughs> I kind of guess. I kind of guess. I I'm like, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all related. It's it all, is. Could you, could you give us like some top soluble fiber foods? It seems like you're indicating mm-hmm. that these are the ones that tend to be missing in a diet. So where where are we looking to sort of add? Mm-hmm. Um. So. Things like, uh, so oatmeal, for instance, has a lot of soluble fiber. Um, not great at, at coming up with a list off the top of my head. Um, okay. So oatmeal. Um, In my mind, products. I think flax, but I don't know if that's correct. Brown flax, like flax, flax meal. Flax the mealy, mealy stuff. Yes and no. Um, so that's, they're not, yeah, that could work. Um mm-hmm. I don't have a list in front of me. You're going to have to like edit this question out, nope, right? That's okay. You can always, <laughs> we can always add this information to our episode page after as well. We have resources. posted. Right. So I could come have, up with a, a yeah, list. I'm, I'm not really great at that because usually what I end up saying is it's really hard to get folks to eat the soluble fibers mm-hmm. and, and, and to keep the calories appropriate. Oh, um, yeah. And so I'm, I, I am sadly a, a little bit of a fan of Miralax. That helps with that Um, because it it doesn't have the laxative dependency Mm -hmm. that that other 
other products have. Um, so mm-hmm. you can come and go from it as needed. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's at least a safer route to go. Yeah. Um, I've, yeah. I've heard psyllium husk is a game changer for sure. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's part of the Metamucil. It's in there. Yeah. So you can get it, you know, but yeah. who wants, honestly, Metamucil doesn't taste very good. No. So, um, yeah, yeah, psyllium and and all of those things, but how you get that into an everyday diet is the challenge. Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're almost kind of done with this first section, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about how thyroid dysfunction can affect eating and nutritional intake, because it is one of those medical challenges that our individuals with Down syndrome experience. I was wondering if you had. Tell me what you're thinking. Um, well, I think a lot of our individuals will have either hypo or hyperthyroidism. So you're talking about the metabolic part mm-hmm. of it? Okay. Mm-hmm. We were, we've been so specific on nutrients. I was like, what are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you can make it however you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, because that will be outside my thing. And I'm like, I need to read up. For sure. <laughs> if you For knew sure. something I didn't know, I wanted to read <laughs> up on it. <laughs> um, okay. So ask your question and then I'll answer it. Sure. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about how thyroid dysfunction may affect eating or nutritional intake for individuals with Down syndrome? So one of the things about um, thyroid dysfunction is that it impacts metabolism. And we haven't talked about metabolism at all yet. Um, so Let's do it. folks with, well, I was just going to put it all in one. Um, folks with Down syndrome, we believe, have a lower basal metabolic rate. So I don't know anything. We have only one study that's starting to look at whether or not they burn calories faster or slower um, when they're walking and talking and running. Um, But we know that when they're perfectly at rest, um, they use about 10% fewer calories. So if you add, let's start with hypothyroidism. So too little thyroid to that, then that that 10% reduction becomes more. So their their metabolism isn't working as effectively. So they need fewer calories to make it through the day before they start gaining weight. So it's easier to gain weight that way. If you have hyperthyroidism, which is too much thyroid, which is also something we see, then their metabolism is moving extra fast and they're burning more calories and it's it's harder to, to keep weight on. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those have their own unique challenges um, that will play out into the the macro and micro nutrients. Yeah. So how much you can eat and then whether you can meet your nutritional needs is if you can't eat as much because you have hypothyroidism and it's not been picked up yet, then you're not, there's no way you're going to get enough micronutrients to, okay. to sustain body function. If you have a faster metabolism, you might need more. Yeah. Um, so all of that. That is one thing we haven't talked about is, is just in general, and it could come into, it could come into when we talk about general nutrition, just at, and habits and how you do that. Um, but I think it's really important for families to know that the Canadian um, Dietetic Association and the American, oh, what do we call ourselves now? The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. The, the, oh, in our country, it's my plate. What do you all have for your food guide? I think it's just, the, isn't it just the Canada 
the health food Canada guide. food guide. I think we it's were just really called creative with our name. Yeah. Okay. All right. You, so. Does it look like anything? A pie. I think it is. a. Yeah, I think it's a pie or like, or like a, a plate. Do you have a pie? So we have a plate. And, and and so so when you look at the food guides that we have in Canada and in the United States, um, we have, you know, these general, you need to eat this many servings of things to get your balanced meal. One of the things that surprised me um, was to learn, this is years ago, but to learn that, that in order to get what they're recommending in that balanced plate or pie, um, you have to eat about 1,500 calories. Okay, to get all, and you have to eat perfect 1,500 calories to get all of the micronutrients that you need Mm -hmm. um, for your body. Now, most of us can eat 1,500 calories, no trouble. But most of us, even if we're we're making sure we only eat 1,500 calories, aren't eating perfect 1,500 calories. So it's super important to recognize that that piece of it. Um, And for that reason, I recommend only an over-the-counter type of multivitamin, mm-hmm. um, only because it, it allows us to relax and then look at habits over nutrient and perfection. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there aren't any specific nutrient needs that you need a high-priced, specialized vitamin um, specific to Down syndrome. The, mm-hmm. the research just doesn't bear it out. Okay. Okay. So are you saying like, you know, the the ones that kids actually really like, like the gummy vitamins, those are fine as long as they're a multivitamin? Yeah, I don't like gummy ones, but yeah. Kids so, <laughs> well, but gummy ones stick to your teeth and yeah. You yeah. Know, and you have the whole dental carry thing. Sure. Um, so so that's that's my issue with that. But if they brush their teeth after that, then sure. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so another digestive system challenge that you mentioned a little bit earlier was reflux, mm-hmm. which, you know, we, I guess we can kind of define it by the peristalsis that's supposed to keep food down and the eso- upper esophage, lower esophageal sphincter opens. So this is the opening closure between your esophagus and your tummy might be open because it's too lax. And then you get stomach contents coming up in your esophagus. It's not comfortable and it's also not good for you. So what can families do? Is there positioning that you recommend, foods that you recommend to sort of mitigate this risk? Or is it best to just go for a medication that works against those stomach acids? Oh, boy, that's a big question with all sorts of answers. One, it depends on age. One of the things that I've learned, and, and you know, this is where being a parent of a, a person with Down syndrome has really helped. Um, and hindsight is always much better than when you're in the moment. Um, but a lot of our kids, even as babies, have that silent reflux. Mm-hmm. So you, if you have a baby who, who, who was spitting up a lot, then I think it's it's almost I won't say safe, but it's it's reasonable to presume that reflux related issues are continuing even if the spitting up has ended. That they're always having a little bit of heartburn, and that that's something you need to be thinking about. Um, I think that um, a lot of a lot of folks with Down syndrome experience 
reflux at a real mild level and we don't realize that that it's there. Um, if you're hearing, I, I'm going for little things. If you're hearing little coughs after they eat, you know, maybe within an hour after they're eating, you're hearing, <coughs> you might, you might be thinking about, um, gee, I wonder if he has some reflux, especially if it comes with, I can't sit down and I need to be moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are some things that I've learned. Those are my hindsight things. Um, when it comes to how to manage that um, activity helps making sure that that you're not eating all day long, um, trying not to eat all day long, trying to pay attention to not overeating as they get older, learning. And, and that's a tough one for all mm-hmm. of us. So talking about what that means, learning what hungry and full feels like, really talking about that, not in a judgmental way, but in an educative way. Um, and then <clears throat> really um, drinking things. The research doesn't bear out that specific foods promote reflux. Um, but if you're starting to experience reflux and even have a little bit of irritation at the bottom of your esophagus, specific foods are going to, um, may, I won't say are going to, may make that feel worse, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, yeah. so esophagitis and the reflux, it, it, what it can start to do, and I think this is a, a general education thing, is it starts to make, like, think about a paper, uh, what do I want to say, a rug burn. Mm-hmm that's basically what the bottom of the esophagus starts to feel like. So think about those things that, that you might eat if they're being held at the top of your stomach might not feel so good. Mm-hmm. So orange juice, yeah, for instance. Yeah. You know, so if you're, if you're eating till you're really full all the time and you're eating real acidic foods, that might happen. But the, the research isn't bearing that out for the general population. So, so that's a tough one. Um, but overeating constantly will will make that worse um and so hindsight again mom with hindsight right um those those coughs um the lack of of exercise if 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 your activity level changes dramatically so for us it was the end of school Mm -hmm. okay um and if you start to hear a cough that sounds a bit like you need to be paying attention to reflux because you're headed towards um esophagitis and and another hindsight piece if you get to that esophagitis place it takes about a year to heal oh yeah worth avoiding yeah 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 the one thing i would add sometimes i'll have parents that come to me and say my kid coughs at night yes when they're laying down yes oh you can raise the love the head of the bed exactly there's some solutions there that you can do but if you're if you're hearing coughing that's not a cold like we're not sick but you hear this Mm -hmm. at night it's probably positional positioning and it is probably stomach acid and tweak that and so many parents will tell you that they come into the bedroom and they find their kids in very strange sleep positions. Mm-hmm. One of them being sitting up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And that may well be a sign that you need to be thinking of that. Very good. You triggered all sorts yeah. of things. So mm-hmm. Brian Chacoin has a great thing on reflex on the, the adult Down Syndrome Center website. And mm-hmm. and I forgot it because we had the head of the bed up for so long, I forgot all about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it just becomes part of your regular. And kids, can, kids and adults can fall asleep with that little bit of incline. Yep. Wait, ours is just a six-inch block yep. that we put. He has a bed that has a platform on it because we yeah. wanted the drawers underneath and, and it's just a six six inch block yeah. um, and they don't slide off the bed I promise yeah I think that's what people worry about <laughs> for sure. yeah. Um, yeah. another I think the last sort of health issue that we wanted to talk about was celiac disease which is something you have mm-hmm. personal and professional experience with mm-hmm. so let's talk two things let's talk symptoms mm-hmm. and then when do we go get tested Okay, so let's let's step back just even one more, sure. and we're going to go back to I have trisomy twenty one. Mm-hmm. I have three little twenty one chromosomes, and they give us many gifts. Um, and one of the gifts that comes with that is that there does not need to be a family history of celiac disease for it to be present in a person with Down syndrome. Um, so if you're headed to your physician and celiac disease is one of your concerns, that's a little fact that you need to have. And if they, if someone would like, and I will send this to you, you can post it anywhere you want. Um, I have a, a fact sheet about celiac disease for Down syndrome. I'm happy to, to send to you for, as a resource um, that talks about this piece. Um, what we know is the vast majority of people with Down syndrome carry that gene for celiac disease. The question is whether or not it turns on. Mm-hmm. So it may or may not turn on. And in many people, it does not. But when you look at the incident rate of celiac disease for people with Down syndrome, as compared to the general population, it's much, much higher. So we know that it's happening at a higher rate. Now, in the United States, I can't speak for Canada, but for in the United States, our physicians historically are very bad at diagnosing celiac disease. So I think both of those numbers are going to go up over time. But the, the European numbers where they're very good at diagnosing celiac disease comparatively, um, folks with Down syndrome have higher percentage of, of an incidence of celiac disease than um, general population. So having said that, um, some of the things to look for, celiac disease is one of those really amazing things. Um, so we have this genetic predisposition that can happen. And if I go through the list of symptoms, you're going to laugh because it can be uh, classically what your physician is going to look for is diarrhea for no apparent reason and all the time, Um, weight loss. Uh, nutrient deficiencies. Um, so for some people, I remember when I was an early, when I was a dietitian before I had Andy, no, I had Andy then, but anyway, um, I was working in a small hospital um, in a rural community and this lady came in and she had these really deep ridges in her fingernails, classic mm-hmm. malnutrition, right? Mm-hmm. But she looked fine otherwise. And it was, that was one of her main symptoms of celiac disease. Wow was was just the and it, and and also so that folks are aware at least in the United States the the typical time from onset of symptoms to diagnosis in the United States is 7 years. Oh, perfect. Right. Uh-huh. So so but we have a heads up cuz we know it's possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got a heads up. So um the other symptoms for folks with down syndrome can also be 
constipation. Yeah. Dark circles under the eyes. So all the time, you know, your kid has these dark circles under their eyes. That was one of Andy's, um, these dark circles. And I, I had no idea. And that's actually an iron deficiency. Yeah. Um, I thought he just wasn't sleeping because <laughs> he wasn't sleeping also. So, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> it's just all those things. But um, so those are all the different kinds of things that can happen. So I'm, I'm just going to tell the Andy story. The Andy story goes like this. So he's doing fine. He's got the dark circles. He's a skinny little guy. Um, and at one point, he started to have this diarrhea, and we were a little concerned about it. And I had, and he had changed medications. That was a con- I, think, I, I can't remember if it was an allergy medication or what. And I was at a conference, and I was at a table with a drug rep, you know, and he wasn't just a drug rep. He's like a higher up in one of the drug companies. And we're talking, and I'm saying the only change is this one medication, Right. And the first thing out of his mouth, and it was a reaction, not a thought process, right, was, oh, it's the lactose. And so apparently there was a huge difference in the amount of lactose between these two different drugs. So they thought, well, maybe he, so then I came home with, I think maybe he's got lactose intolerance. So we went down that path. And, and, and the diarrhea stopped. And then I was doing more research and reading, and I read that lactose intolerance is sometimes one of the first symptoms of celiac disease. Mm. Yeah. So, so I read that, and I'm like, uh-oh. And I, I'm trying to tell my husband about it, who's like, no, no, we can't do that, because we are a typical family. <laughs> and, and so we, I thought, okay, I'm going to wait on this and just kind of observe and see what I think. And, and what ended up happening is about a year and a half later, we're back to having some diarrhea. Um, and it was happening at school. So, and the, the person who was his support person was very unhappy about it and trying to explain to me that he was sick. And there was a, a really bad incident that happened related to this because there was an attitude issue in the support person. Okay. And I, I don't get into the details of my trauma. <laughs> But we we missed getting to the doctor to get the test because we were so angry about this incident. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the diarrhea came back and then we went to the doctor and had our tests. And this was before we had the great tests that we have now. We have much better tests now for celiac disease before we had the tissue transglutaminase even. Um, and so all we had were the IgA kinds of tests to do. And Andy came back inconclusive. So what his pediatrician and I decided was, was that these tests are kind of all over the place and not super accurate. And we knew that from the start. So what, what we did was we did a gluten-free challenge mm-hmm. and okay. stopped eating gluten. And lo and behold, everything stopped. Yeah. I mean, within a day. Wow. Wow. It was so. If you have celiac disease, that when you start implementing that that gluten free lifestyle, the impact is immediate. It isn't. It isn't. Oh, and you know we've been doing it for two months and things aren't better. It's if you're doing the diet well, and I give everyone thirty days to figure out how to do that well. If you're doing the diet relatively well, you're going to see a change immediately. Um, mm. So. Before I get into the ins and outs of testing, I'll just say this. A lot of people, there's, there's, there's 
advocates out there who believe that everyone with Down syndrome should follow a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. Doing yourself a little bit of a disservice if, if you do that and you think the child might have celiac disease if you don't go through the medical hoops first of getting the testing done because you'll have to stop take, stop eating gluten for over 30 days to get enough of it in the system to see if that's happening. <laughs> the other piece of it is if you're doing that for, I don't care why you're doing it um, because sometimes changes what we know about the gut is we don't know much about the gut and sometimes changes do make a difference behaviorally. Okay. Okay. So if you do see, if you're going to see a difference because of the diet that you're implementing, it's going to happen immediately. It's not going to be six months down the road. No, It's it's an expensive diet. It's Mm -hmm. hard to do. It's hard on the rest of the family. Um, As adults, if you're living in a group situation, it's, it makes you different from everybody. It's, it's rough. It's rough to follow, you know, when you really want to eat pizza at the pizza place and there isn't any. So don't go down that path if you don't see the changes that you want. So I highly recommend like a behavior diary first mm-hmm. so that you're marking, you've got your things that are an issue for you that the reason that you're starting this diet, be it diarrhea or dark circles or whatever, you you know, or they're just angry all the time or they're stimming all the time. Um, if whatever your key things are, write them in your diary, take some baseline data for a week Go ahead and start the diet. If you don't see a change in two weeks, 30 days max, the diet's not helping. Interesting. Um, Can I ask you a couple more symptom-related questions? Sure. So anecdotally in clinic, I've seen some students who are really rashy Mm -hmm. on their skin. Mm -hmm. That's another another side effect, yeah. Okay. So And then once they are doing the gluten-free diet, that resolves. It has a really difficult name to say. Dermatitis, ha 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 ha. Oh, there. Okay. okay. <laughs> the, the short name is DH. Okay. <laughs> but it, there is a specific rash related to celiac disease. Then when you go, when you implement that gluten free diet, you're going to see an improvement in that. It may not mm-hmm. go all the way away in a week, but you're going to see in a week improvement in that rash. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be anywhere on the body. And it's different from the alopecia that you see underneath the hair. It's mm-hmm. different from that. Um, so yes, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for reminding me of that. Oh, I'm all into my I've Andy seen, story, you know. And seen it a couple of times <laughs> and really noticed a market difference. And then, of course, the students are more comfortable when that is resolved as well. Um, right. Other one. Oh, the other one I wanted to ask you was about how do I put it? I guess appetite control where a student who was later diagnosed with celiacs was just overeating all the time, all the time, all the time. Once they realized he had celiac disease, he wasn't as hungry. He lost a lot of weight in a very healthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, And do do you notice that anecdotally? I don't know if there's research on that, but that is how that happened for him. (laughs) Well, there isn't research, but I can, I can apply, I can apply basic science and basic metabolic stuff to this really easily. Like I said, remember we talked about how there's this like range of symptoms that could be anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so you kind of have to play detective when you think the person might have celiac disease. One of the things is, you know, when you have malnutrition, things are going and you have that diarrhea, maybe 
and maybe he didn't, but either way, what happens in the gut, see, this is when it's sad that it's a podcast. What happens in the gut is you have these villi in your gut that are like, think of a, um, a, a field of wheat waving in the wind, okay? And the, what food does is it goes in between each stalk of wheat to, to absorb the nutrients out of it. When you have celiac disease, your, your field of wheat is flat. Somebody ran over it and it's down. And so it doesn't have as many opportunities to absorb the nutrients that you get. And that's that's why most people have the diarrhea piece because it just kind of slides right on through. Mm-hmm. Your guy who's constantly hungry, it's probably going through pretty quickly and it's also not absorbing what he needs. Mm-hmm. So he's the the good news to that family is that he was good at listening to his body which is one of the the behavioral things that I do around a trust model is is learning to trust your kids from if you can start in infancy and go to adulthood if you trust that they know what their body needs then and listen to what they're telling you then you've got something to work with. He was listening to his body very, very well. So his body wasn't getting what he needed. And so he kept eating and he might've yeah. gained weight. He might've lost weight. Doesn't, it, there was some key thing he wasn't getting. Once he corrected and took the gluten out of his diet and that allergy symptom went away, he was also listening to his body and not mm-hmm. eating as much. Mm-hmm. And he was probably feeling the fullness that you have yeah. because the food's staying there and going through an appropriate yeah. rate. Yeah. So there's a lot of things there. That's like, you know, kudos, kudos to that family. That's well, he, and the guy is just feeling so much better now. Yeah. You know, oh, sure. Yeah, the mood has changed. Yeah. yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. I think he's just literally has like a new zest for life. Like Absolutely. he's just a different yeah. person. Yeah. He's getting all the nutrients that he needs. He was yeah. eating because he wasn't. Yeah. And then there's the whole, you know, if he lost weight in a healthy way, because, because his body's working, okay. Yeah. It's working. And then the metabolism can work the way it's supposed to, and everything's working well. So he's, he's losing weight because he's eating this appropriate amount. Yeah. Um, instead of too much because the body's still gathering when he's eating the too much to meet the nutrient deficiency he's still getting a lot of calories in that process right so he starts to listen to his body and he's losing weight because it feels healthy not only is he getting all the nutrients he needs but his body's working better yeah Yeah. and 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 the reason i say kudos to that family is because it sounds like there wasn't a lot of um judgment about what he was choosing to eat more along the lines of of concern mm-hmm. about what was happening he's eating like he's a hollow leg like teenagers yeah. do and mm-hmm. and there's something wrong he doesn't look healthy but he's eating really well you know and you're problem solving that and you fix it and they're still allowing him to listen to his body and yeah. do what his body needs and that that is just so so important and i think it's in, in, excuse me with this particular student it's so great because he's recognized that his diet changing has made him feel better. So now every time there's like a class event or something pre COVID, he's like, Oh, I can't eat that. I did a program with him. It's like, I can't eat that. It might have gluten in it or whatever. So he's managing because he knows that no gluten will make him feel better. And this is why I feel like I'm a big gut health nerd. (laughs) Marla knows, (laughs) but I like, we have to remember that, what happens in the gut affects the brain as well. So it's a two-way connection. So it's not just your brain affecting your gut. And they call the gut our third nervous system for a reason. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so that was really cool to see in this in his case that he mm-hmm. recognized it and is 
more motivated to stick to that diet? I will say, globally speaking, most of the people who are older that I know who are diagnosed with celiac disease, and that's not uncommon, not because it gets missed, but because it seems like the gene seems to turn on mm-hmm. a little bit later in life mm-hmm. um, for everyone, not just kids um, or kids with Down syndrome. But um, yeah. what I have noticed is that everyone is very aware of the change in their in their health. Um, I have a friend who who I've been working with, sometimes paid, sometimes not. She's now, you know, like family to me, um, who was diagnosed with celiac disease just like, uh, I'm going to say about two years ago um, as a result of using, what is it called? The down, the new Down syndrome clinic thing that Brian Scott oh, yeah. is promoting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they did awesome. the whole questionnaire and, and, and the recommendation that went to the physician was to test for celiac disease. Awesome. Um, and, and, after going on the gluten-free diet, she feels so much better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She feels so much better. And, and this story you might want to include because it's kind of fun. Um, my first experience with celiac disease with a person with Down syndrome was before Andy had celiac disease before I knew about it. Um, and I was consulting with a post-secondary program in um, Maine and as a dietitian, I didn't know much about gluten-free, and it was before it was really keen and everybody was doing it. And I didn't know a whole lot about what was out there for people to do, and I would admit that straight up. This gal with Down syndrome took me through all of the grocery stores that they used as a post-secondary program where she shopped, and she explained to me all of the things, where all the cool gluten-free things were. Um, she explained to me all of the additives, the like the thickeners and things that are in pre-processed foods that she couldn't have um, and would pick up a box and say this right here. Uh, I mean, it was an amazing thing. She taught me about the ins and outs of the practicality of gluten-free living um, back when it was really hard to do. Um, the good news yeah. is today it's not so hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's much more widespread, but good for her. Someone educated her very well. Yes, they did a very, her mom was was a really staunch advocate and um, and they had notebooks of stuff that she had learned and, and she didn't see it as a, as a um, bad thing, as a restriction. She saw it as this is my thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, right. Yeah. So, you know, but then she did, because she was learning to live independently when she was in her apartment, she did challenge that diet a couple of times because she Mm -hmm. wanted to fit in with her, Mm -hmm. with her fellow students. They had ordered some stuff that she couldn't have. Yeah. And so then we had to talk about, Ooh, how'd that feel? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That connection. Yeah. Yeah. There's natural consequences. All right. So let's kind of move into our treatment and therapy approaches. Marla, do you want to start us off with that one? Sure. I mean, I think that there's just a lot. There's a lot of approaches or therapies that you can use to sort of improve nutritional intake, etc. What are some of the methods that you find are successful with this group in terms of how do we teach about healthy diet and how do we eat? Because you talked a lot about trusting the child or young adult to do, make their own choices? Are we trying to guide this educational process? Thanks. I, I never think of it as treatment. I think that's where I, you were seeing that look on my face. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think of, of supporting folks to live healthy and well through food um, and activity as a treatment. I see it as a lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
so we have really good research um, around what's called the trust model. Um, so the story goes that when I was a young dietitian and Andy was a baby, um, the trust model, as we call it, was just being uh, promoted by a Canadian dietitian and social worker named Ellen Satter. And she was doing a presentation here in Oregon, teaching us about what she calls the feeding relationship. And one of the things that she said was that this applies to all children except children with disabilities. So anyone who knows me, this is like way back in 1995. So um, one of of the things that anyone who knows me knows is that you can't say that to me, right? And, And this was, you know, so we're way back in... It's more like 1992, and and we didn't have the internet yet, and we didn't have access to lots of good information at our fingertips. So I, I had to ask the question, why? Right. Um, so I, my mother was an early intervention teacher back in 1968. She did one of the first early intervention classrooms and it was a big inclusion proponent. So before I even knew about the National Down Syndrome Congress and the National Down Syndrome Society and all of that, I knew that I needed to look at my son as more alike than different, right? So the question was, why wouldn't this work? And, and so first, let me tell you what the feeding relationship is. The trust model feeding relationship would be that parents are responsible for what, where, when, and how food is presented. And our children are responsible for how much and whether or not it's eaten. Yep. Okay. What I use at home. Right. It sounds mm-hmm. very, very much when you're, especially if you're in the throes of a picky eater or other issues, it sounds very much like I'm saying that they get, they, they get to run the house. But that's not true. But the, the piece that's different for a family who has um, someone with Down syndrome in it is that we also have, forgive me, you two, the speech therapist, the occupational therapist, the early intervention teacher, the special education teacher, the physical therapist, the, you know, go down the list of the people from birth and have an opinion have an about our child, right? Well-meaning but they, we all have opinions oh, yeah. about how this should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we can add in the internet, right? Yeah. So blogs. I, yeah, I should totally put that on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I have the lady at the grocery store on my list, but I should, I should add the, the internet on there. Um, but all of those people, when you have a young kid, really influence what you think as a parent. Our role as those support people is to support the family's values and practices around what, how, when, and where food is presented so that they can honor whether or not it's eaten and how much so that the kids, so that we can support that feeding relationship. Um, So what I find in promoting healthy lifestyles is, is it's as much education for all the people around the person with Down syndrome as it is education for the person with Down syndrome. But if we follow that trust model, what we learn is that um, people and kids intuitively know what to eat. So if we're providing a balanced meal and it's on the table and they don't choose to eat everything that's on the table, but they eat something so they're not going to die, right? Um, then we need to honor that because our body does not see every meal as needing to be perfect. Our body sees it as an average over time. 
So, and it takes what it needs as it needs it. So being able to relax about things and focus on doing the helpful thing is really where I, I focus my attention. And I have to say, Andy, um, for all of the labels that, that he has acquired and that I tend to forget about and don't think of, is one of the best intuitive eaters I have met in my life. Um, he has some weight issues, and those are related to medications, which we haven't talked about. And we should go back and talk about for the physiological piece. Um, but he has some weight issues, but they're impacted by his medications. Um, but when it comes to should I eat or not, really good at it. Really good at it. And I mean, there'll be weeks when he doesn't eat one thing and then the next week, that's all he'll eat. Um, and and he's like a, an amazing broccoli and celery and carrot eater. Um, so he does a really good job that way. Sensory wise, he seeks crunchy. Mm-hmm. So we overlay all of those things we know about Down syndrome onto that trust model and it will work. Mm-hmm. When it won't work is when there has been trauma Um, and that can be medical trauma. So if they've had an intubation, if they've had lots of surgeries, um, if they, if they, yes, if they have eaten something that didn't go well because they choked on it, um, a variety of things, any trauma related to the feeding process or, or the access to food, um, then impacts that trust model. And we have to be, we have to then create safety so that they can learn to do that again. And they may not. They, that's, that's the person that may need more boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and trauma also can be around behavior. If we restrict food, if, we, if we're the food police and that's our default, um, you need to eat more. No, you need to stop. Um, then then we, we impact that trust model in a way that, that isn't reparable. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think parents feel a lot of pressure. Uh-huh. It's largely the fault of everybody around them telling them they have to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they're pressured into coercing their child or getting into some power struggles, for lack of a better word. About no, that's a great you know, word. <laughs> you will, you won't, you have to, you can't. Um, more of this, less of that, all of those kind of things. And, you know, our students get the label of stubborn, which I don't agree with. But when decisions are made, they're they're kind of made. And certainly, you know, if somebody has decided they're not going to do something, then you're then you're in trouble and you're in a real power struggle issue. And it's that news about food, really. Well, and that's that's why I focus on calling it the trust model, Um, Mm -hmm. because I'm also a big proponent of person centered practices Mm -hmm. Um, and person centered practices depend on trust. And and trust is that trust model really means that you're going to listen with the intent to hear, act on what you hear, and be honest about what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, that means I need to listen to what is being said and I need to act on it. And and sometimes that action is to say I can't. And here's why. Um, but when it comes to, to food choices, the other piece of that is when we have a disrupted trust model, I want you to answer me this question. When you go on a diet, what's the first thing you do? I don't ever go on diets. Sorry. <laughs> have you ever been on a diet? No. Oh, I don't, I don't think I've ever met someone who said no to that question. <laughs> How about you? Have you been on a diet? <laughs> um, 
not not in the conventional way. So if it's like if I have gut issues, then I will adjust my what I intake. Like like oh, you two are just too rare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but not weight loss diet. I've never done that. No. Yeah. Well, and it could be a diet for any reason. Let me put yeah. it another way. It could be a diet I mean, yeah. for any reason. Like if you somebody's suddenly experiencing diabetes, okay, mm-hmm. and they have to go on a diet, or even they have celiac disease, they have to go on a diet. What's the yeah. first thing you do? What's the first thing you do when I take something away from you? What's the first thing you, you do? Probably want it. You want it back? Would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the <laughs> it's called the diet cycle, but you ruined my explanation. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's okay. You're young. You'll get there. (laughs) But the diet cycle means that um, when we we go on a diet, the first thing we do is we think about the things we can't have. Yeah. Mm. And when we think about the things that we can't have, we tend to perseverate on it a little bit and Mm -hmm. they become larger than life. So Mm -hmm. then when something becomes larger than life and you can't have it and that's all you can think about, what do you do? You binge on it. Yeah. yeah. Right. You go to town. Now for some of some folks with Down syndrome, this might translate to you hide it in the couch mm-hmm. or you sneak it or whatever. You find a way to go here or over here because they told you you can't. Yeah. And then and then what happens is you feel guilty about that. Mm-hmm. Right. I have some tremendous guilt. Oh, I was bad. And yeah. then and then you get back to the diet mentality and it just goes round and round and round and round. Mm-hmm. So it's part of why there are two things. One, I don't ever have a good food, bad food that doesn't exist. All food is good. It's, it's how it's used, meaning each, each and every food, even something like um, a candy cane, since it's December, um, will, will have a role and has a, a positive role. Now, it might be that the role is that it's, it's December and a candy cane is just, it's a treat that we have instead of ice cream this time of year, right? Mm-hmm. It might be that I'm, I really need to eat and there's no other food available. Mm-hmm. And that little bit of sugar is going to keep me from ripping that person's head off. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different things that a candy cane can be a good food. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't do good food, bad food. I look at what the purpose of the foods are and, and how they play into our balanced and, and real life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so good food, bad food doesn't exist. And so if we can get away from that, then that's one way of not getting into that diet cycle and feeling that guilt. I ate yeah. a candy cane. That's a bad food. How does yeah. that kid feeling now? All their life they've been hearing, that's a bad food. Don't eat that. It's bad for you. They've eaten it. And now that person feels like they've done this horrific thing. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, it's, it's a lot of different things to play with. And, and it, it plays into our mental health as well and how we feel about ourselves and our self-esteem. Um, so that's why I say I hardly ever talk about food. <laughs> I talk about all sorts of things yeah. that support how we make our food choices. Yeah. Um, and then you get into that person-centered practice around choices. So yeah. the education model uh, really is, is that, is starting with that trust model mm-hmm. and then heading into basic nutrition and then looking at what do you like and what don't you like? Person-centered practice. Mm-hmm. What works? What doesn't work? What do you like? What do you hate? Mm-hmm. What are the things that are getting in the way? Um, Sometimes it's, it's uh, sensory issues that lead to picky eating. Yeah. Right. So, so we do, a, I, I love doing, um, particularly with adults, 
I have a friend who does kids really well. And so I like watching her do the kids, and, but I will do them also. But our pickiest eaters, the ones that the parents bring to the, to the, to the nutrition workshop here in town, where we put the kids down, the kids go to a different room and they try all sorts of different foods. They read books about food and they learn the sensory properties of food and they play with food. They might paint with food. They do all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff with food and then they taste the food. Right. I'm upstairs talking to the parents and usually it's the pickiest of eaters who comes upstairs. They came in a beautiful uh, white eyelet dress, you say, (laughs) and they come upstairs with blueberry yogurt all over them. You know, and we're telling them, um, you should have, I mean, we asked you to bring them in clothes that they could get dirty. Oh, she's not going to touch the food. She doesn't, she hates touching food. Yeah. You know, and that's the kid that comes upstairs covered in, you know, this staining thing. So we learned to bring some shirts to put over them. With the adults, we do um, a workshop that's called Fearless Feeders or, or uh, Food Detectives. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I focus in on the properties of taste. Mm. So... And we'll pick a food to to explore. Sure. And one of the foods, um, uh, so when I was at the Canadi- Canadian Down Syndrome Society once, we did we did pears because it was pear season. Because um, <coughs> I think it was in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. We did pears. And we had all these different pears. And they all had really unique names, right? Um, so we did the pears and we, we would chop them up. And we first we would look at them because they all look different. Yeah. And we talk about how they look different. And then we, we actually did a little rolling race to see which one rolled the best. Um, <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Well, it's all about how they look, how they, it, it's, just, it's all of the, well, it's not even the interactive. It's the, the physical properties of the food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For little kids, it's how do they sound when you throw them on the floor? Yeah. How do, when you paint them on the wall? Right. That's our our sensory explorer will do all those things. But if they aren't learning those pieces about food, then then they aren't going to be able to know, feel that the food is safe. So we, we do all those things. And then we have this rule that, okay, so nobody has to taste anything. It's not required. We provide a spit cup for the adults. Um, and then there's rules around the spit cup. They don't get to show their neighbor their spit cup. They don't get to make noise when they spit. Um, you yeah. know, and it's, yeah, you that get the idea. The yeah, yeah the, the spit cup's not the thing. Um, so we, we deal with that. And then so that if someone's brave enough to put it in their mouth, but, but it freaks them out for whatever reason. They have somewhere to put it. Yeah. And that's the biggest t- lesson for families is, is yeah. teach your kid what to do if something doesn't mm-hmm. go well in their mouth. If they can get rid of it, they'll taste it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's safe. Exactly. So we do that. And then if they eat it, great. So, and, then we, and then we score them. And, and we talk about, was it sweet? Was it bitter? Was it crunchy? Was it soft? You know, and we go through all of those things and they become food detectives. And I have, I've worked through a lot of food issues using that process because yeah. it's more sensory than anything else. Um, yeah. I think, How do you think, oh, go for it, Hannah. No, it's, that's okay. I'm just going to speak a little bit to the, to that as well. Cause I think parents that are listening, I know lots of parents that say, oh, my kids will only eat white bread or chicken nuggets. And of course, that's because it all looks the same. It's generally always tastes mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. But kind of wanting them to know that you can go from that to um, like a healthier food option. So not mm-hmm. a good, I don't want to use the word good or bad here because I'm going to learn not a to different do that. food option, a different food option. So you can go from white bread to broccoli or carrots, but there are lots of steps involved. And part of that is exploring the food 
changing properties one at a time. Because as OTs, that's definitely something that we do as well, just kind of making sure that we're gradually exposing you to new food. So it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that they'll only eat that stuff for the rest of their life. Absolutely. You can. It's a lot of work, but you can do it. And, and you can make it fun. I mean, I always tell mm-hmm. people that um, snack time is the best learning time. Yeah. So, and it doesn't have to be, for heaven's sakes, it doesn't have to be every day. That's the other thing. Um, People walk away with this idea they have to be perfect and do this every day, but make it an event, you know, and, and you can start with just, well, what, you know, let's, do you want to try, what kind of food do you want to try? And Mm -hmm. let's go to the store Mm -hmm. and, and you make the shopping list and then they shop for their food experience, or if it has to be prepared, then they get to help prepare it. Um, So it it can be, you know, a week long thing that's really just one snack, Um, but snack time's a great time to explore because we're usually not super hungry at snack time. Yeah, right. Um, we're usually just, you know, it's a time to just kind of say this is an experiment and exactly. and look at it. And man, you can, now that we're all schooling at home, I don't know about Canada, but here in the states, we're schooling mm-hmm. at home. So it can be a math activity, it can be a science activity, it can be, um, you know, so many learning domains yeah. um, around this food exploration piece. Mm-hmm. And I guess we wouldn't be taking them to the store necessarily right now, but they could pick it out on Instacart or however, yeah. you know, you could buy it online. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. And is it Marla? Are you the speech therapist? Yes. Okay. So one of the things that I do is, is I do want to point out that there's a difference between an oral motor issue and a sensory issue. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I have like a food chart that I I share with folks that's developmentally based. Um, So I was just, you know, again, hindsight, right? I was so frustrated at getting charts that had ages on them when Andy was young. So I I think Gerber and other companies now put out these developmentally based charts, but I had it before they did. (laughs) But it has one of my favorite sections of this food chart is indications for the next step so that you know Mm -hmm. what to look for. Um, And what I find is, is just in most people with Down syndrome overall, when we get to adulthood, we're really chewing wise at a place where it's, it's sort of the soft foods is our chewing skill. We have a hard time getting to the mature rotary chew. We can modify for it. We find ways to get around it. Um, and you'll find a lot of folks who don't chew the foods very well and swallow everything whole. Yep. Um, but that that whole process of which food texture to look at, and sometimes, you know, that's why they're looking at white bread and chicken mm-hmm. nuggets, is exactly. it has to do with, it's not so much the sensory component of it, Easy as it is, chew, yeah. I can't handle it. Yeah. yeah. So like a McDonald's hamburger, um, as far as I'm concerned, is a meltable food. Mm-hmm. You do not need to chew it, mm-hmm. right? You can mash that on the top of your mouth, Um until it's liquidy enough to swallow. Um, and, and that's true of any of the fast food hamburgers. So I, I don't want to pick on just one company. You bring up a really good point because, you know, if your child is only successful with purees, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the time to bring out Broccoli. Your carrot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, certainly play with them, but we don't have the expectation that our child is just going to suddenly exactly chew those right up and swallow them and not have any challenges or difficulty with that. Yeah, I wouldn't. And there's a safety concern there as well, yeah. right? So, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. that's why we don't give carrots to, you know, infants, exactly. any infant. Yeah, right. And and generally that's the, what do they call that? Um, 
hard munchable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you want to be um, using that hard munchable to build that. Oops, sorry, that jaw strength. Um, and there, mm-hmm. and so if you do use a carrot, you want to be swiping that carrot out with your finger if mm-hmm. they bite a piece off. Or you want it yeah. to be so big that they cannot bite a piece off. Like some of those. Yeah. You'd be amazed at what they can make happen. <laughs> well, they have they have equipment to help with that too. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. we don't want to go too into the into the, no. the, the SOS process, but they have like mesh feeders, things that you can just you know I, chew on. You don't have to worry about swallowing. Oh, but, but that's yeah. great that you use yeah. SOS. I'm a oh big for sure. K, I'm yeah. a big K two me fan. I'm big yes. K two me fan. So yeah. I do I do that whole sensory stages of eating yeah. that I got from K two me and yes, absolutely. And the process, that's a great program because it's an SLP slash OT collaborative model. So it needs a dietitian. And it, it does. I agree. I hundred percent agree. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Totally does. But sorry. One thing. One thing I wanted to ask you about. So the the programs that you were talking about are group programs, and I suspect that that contributes largely to the success mm-hmm. of exploring new foods when you have peers there who might also be nervous, but are also trying things with you. So it's not like in my mind, it kind of decreases the direct pressure that any one student might feel because we can observe other people doing it. These guys are having fun painting with blueberries. I might, you know, also have fun painting with blueberries right now. Is that part of the reason? No, it's not the only reason, but it is a reason. Um, I think that that's true, particularly with the little ones. You know, the more people, the more more fun it is because they do model. Um, And it doesn't have to be um, little ones with Down syndrome. It can be any kid. This right. is this, these are activities that every child benefits from. Um, so it could be anybody. But I will say that I, I have done this with children and adults one on one. The unique benefit that I have is that they're coming to me for a reason. Um, and if I can make the visits fun, then it's it's a whole different thing. They don't feel like they're being told anything. They come thinking I'm going to beat them up, say good food, bad food. Blah, 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 blah. And what we end up doing is playing with food. And, and then we end up like, you know, figuring out, like I have a tasting journal that I use and we, we do, we become food detectives and they choose what we're going to do. And it could be one person or 12 people, whatever. And it's that same process that we just talked about. They choose the food when it's one-on-one and we get it together and we, sometimes we cook it together. Sometimes it's a non-cooked thing. And then we mark whether we like it or we don't like it and what it is we like and don't like about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't always like the foods they like, mm-hmm. you know, so I, and I'm not shy to say, <laughs> you know, I don't right. like that. Um, and, but I have to be able to say why. And yeah. I can't say I don't like it before we start. See, those yeah. are all the rules. You know, you can't say you don't like it until you go through the process. If you don't taste it because other components of it bug you, yeah. again, it's that sensory stages of eating. If it smells yeah. icky and you just can't bring yourself to eat it, and I've had people gag at the sight of food, um, yeah. then, you know, that's okay. We write that down. And, and what it becomes for our teens is it becomes this tool for when they move out. Mm-hmm. I have tried these foods. Now, I'm willing to try it again, but I need to use this process, mm-hmm. you know. But before you start telling me what I can and can't eat, here's my food tasting journal. And this yeah. is what I like and don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives them that, that um, power. Control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm all about empowering people. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I think you mentioned this earlier on in the podcast, about the feeling of hunger. Now, from a sensory perspective, you know, it is a bit more difficult for our individuals with Down syndrome to tune into that sense. 
because mm-hmm. they have weak interoception. And, mm-hmm. um, but how would you go about teaching them um, or making them more aware of hunger and when they are hungry, when they've eaten enough to be satiated? Mm-hmm. Like what would your go-to process be? Um, first, I want you to define interoception. Sure. Oh, she do it every podcast. I know, every <laughs> podcast, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so interoception is one of our eight sensory systems, um, and interoception uh, kind of deals with the internal signals of the body, so the sensory okay. receptors that are on our organs that tell us hunger, thirst, pain, temperature regulation, bowel, bladder, etc. Okay. Done. <laughs> I didn't know you did it every podcast. So I was like, you know, I think I think people listening need to know what that big no, word is. I don't know. <laughs> true. Absolutely. You're right. It's yeah. usually me who's like, and Hina, please define it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you never know if somebody's listening to this for the first time. Exactly. Or first episode. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, and I'm yeah. a big health literacy person. So it's like, okay, right. that's a big word. It has more than three syllables. Yes. <laughs> define. <laughs> Um, Okay, so the internal processes of understanding hunger, it's hard for everyone, particularly as you get older. The older Mm -hmm. you get, the harder it is to define what hunger really is, because sometimes hunger can be emotional. Um, if we, if we are an emotional eater, we have a lot of, a lot of people in the world are emotional eaters and we feel extreme emotion. We've tied the need for food to that, or for some people, the need to not eat the nausea. Um, so, so there's, it gets a little bit harder as you get older. The, the general belief is that, um, uh, yes, it's, it, it's a little harder to feel those very intricate things um, and to feel them quickly. Um, I usually look at it rather than a sensory issue. I look at it as more of a how long it takes for us to process information in our heads. Um, and when I work with folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities, I recognize that it takes at least a minute for what I say, one word, to go in, process around, them to motor plan what, or know what they want to say and then motor plan and get it out. So if it takes that long with just a verbal, think of how long it, it takes for our internal to say, oh, yeah, I got to send that message over there and it's got to go up here and it's got to run around. It's got to figure out where it's going to go. And then I got to figure out what I think about it. And then I got to take an action. Yeah. Okay. So I start with a really classic first one, which is we've eaten a reasonable amount of food. It looks like we've eaten a reasonable amount of food. We're using the trust model. Um We've, we've eaten, they've, they've chosen to be done, they've left the table, okay? And we don't know if they're going to come back. We want to trust what they feel. But we also want to say, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm hungry when I'm, I think I'm hungry when I'm not. I just know something's there and I want it. Or oftentimes when they're younger, I think it's more of a, think about when does your mom and dad listen to you? I want some food. I want a snack, it's, and, and it's the easy thing to say because we've learned to say it more. That first sign that we teach more. And, and so they just, you know, more. And then you say more what? More cracker? More, you know, and we always jump to food with that more unless we're in the middle of an, of a, of an activity that they want more of. Right. So, so I often think that it's a, it's a, engagement moment so what I try to teach families of the younger runs is okay and it just works for adults too mealtime's over let's go do something really fun and let me give you my attention 
for 15 minutes. And if they have one of those time timers and you can even get it on your phone, set it to no sound, then someone can see that it's been 15 or 20 minutes and they're not asking for food anymore because what they really wanted was you. (laughs) They really wanted engagement. They don't want to be on their own and go for a walk. They want, they want engagement. So if, if that's the issue, you'll know in 15 or 20 minutes, if they're truly hungry, when you're in that 15 or 20 minutes, bad things will happen. (laughs) And you'll find out that, that you need to be looking at food, you know, um, Andy, Andy is a man of few words and, um, his father's recently retired and does most of the support while I work so that we have health insurance. Um, and now that I'm working at home, I hear this process happening a lot. His father is very time oriented. We eat at this time, this time, this time, and trying to teach him to be a little more flexible is, is sadly it's Andy's job, <laughs> but he'll, he'll say, you know, no, it's not time for lunch yet. And then things will happen. I'll hear, ah, what, why are you mad at me? <laughs> and then, and then we're headed off. Oh, okay. It's lunchtime. Yeah. So he's learning. but but it's it's part of it um but definitely using that time when I try to I have worksheets that I work in so that we can do some structure around it around mindful eating so as we get older one of the things I teach is stop take a big deep breath think about it and then make a decision Mm -hmm. and part of that big deep breath and, and think about it time is maybe I need 15 minutes Mm-hmm. let's go do, i i want to go do something else first um but yeah. slowing things down so that it's not reaching for an impulse is probably one of the the biggest ones and then for some people it's creating a structure yeah yeah speaking of structure because i had a conversation with a parent once where she said that her son will um once they sit down to eat at the dinner table, the food might be on the counter or they serve from there because the food is still on the counter. He is requesting to eat more and more because to him, you know, that, that visual is like that there's more opportunity to eat. He can see it. It's like a buffet. Yeah. (laughs) So like when she puts everything, like everyone's served and the food is put away, then it's like, okay, so the opportunity is not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So like the visual aspect of it, the availability can Absolutely. And that's why some some families can't do family style where you just put it on the table Mm -hmm. for the very same reason. I mean, the opposite of our picky eaters where we want to do that so that they see it is 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 making sure that some people have to do a plated version. But if you do the plated version, you want to set it up so they can choose what goes on their plate the first time. Um, And then and then. Yeah, putting it away so that if the opportunity is not there for other people, you know, the opportunity is always there because I know how to open the refrigerator and I know how to get in the cupboard and I know how to open the boxes. Um, And we found that um, setting up special sections of the pantry, be it a bin or whatever, with these are your approved snack foods, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, one mom, she she loved this system so much. She did it for all her kids. It was it was great because they were all teenagers and they all needed different things and nobody knew what was in each other's bin, right? And they didn't really care because they were all on their bin. Um, but they had you know sections in the in the refrigerator. Same idea because sometimes things need to be refrigerated. But you mark these are the snack things and um, for some people. 
and again, you know, one of the things about food, nutrition, and behavior is that everyone's different. But for some people, setting it up so that we're saying this is your budget for X number of days mm-hmm. um, works because they know when it's gone, it's gone. So maybe they eat it all on the first day. Yeah, and and that's an emotional eating moment, and we and you know I learn a lot from that kind of thing, um, and and sometimes it's they're testing the system, you know, but but if they agree to the system and if they agree that it seems reasonable and they agree that what's in it seems reasonable and they're the choices that they like, then then they end up liking the system because this is mine. Don't touch yeah. it; it's mine. Yeah. Um, and that helps too. So it really depends on each person and what the mm-hmm. issues are. Um, but using that mindful eating kind of process with a person-centered lens, mm-hmm. big words sound really pretty for saying, I'm going to listen to what it is that you want. And then we're going to stop, take a deep breath, think about what our options are, and then make a decision. Yeah. And implementing that then it usually helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but there's no one perfect solution. For sure. Yeah. Um, just had one more quick question before I kind of hand it back over to Marla to um, finish us off for the day. What are I'm impressed thoughts? you're going to finish it off. I can talk forever. Oh, I know. We we, we would love to, but this is great because we can have you back again. So that's <laughs> Yes, awesome. you can. Yeah, absolutely. And we probably will. Um, but what were your thoughts on using food as a reward? So, and the reason Never, why never, no, that, no. It's a never, never, no, no. Perfect. Food is a reward is what I, one of, I have very few never, never, no, no's and yep. food is a re- reward is a never, never, no, no. I don't care what program you're using. Um, ABA folks really like to use food as a reward. It's a never, never, no, no. Find something else. Yeah. Um, I don't care who it is, what their abilities are, what their labels are. Find something else. Can you tell us why it's a never, never, no, no for those learn- ABA therapists listening? <laughs> <laughs> So if what we're trying to teach is we're trying to teach people that they have choice and control over their food. And what we use food as is the hooray. There are a couple of things that I see behaviorally reasonably happening. One is I never do anything unless I get food for it. Another is every time I do something good, I deserve food. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's what you're teaching them related to food and nutrition as opposed to, hey, I did a good job. I'm a great person. Particularly for folks with Down syndrome, they do a great, a, a high five, a hug, all sorts of things will meet that same reward need, a, a chart um, of checks. And, and if you have to have a reward at the end of 10 checks, great. Make it something that they really want. Um, let's see, a frozen book. I don't know. Activity-based. Um, well, it, it, anything that it, – it doesn't have to be activity-based. Anything that they want to work for. So yeah. one of Andy's classrooms, there was a young lady. Um, and I, she did not have Down syndrome. But they used um, some ABA practices in there as far as um, using checklists for different things and, and rewards for – different behaviors and such. Um, but what I loved about this, this guy who came in as a teacher, um, he did not have a special ed background, but he knew not, he, he himself would not use food as a reward, which I loved. And there was this gal, he learned something about every kid. He learned them. And so Amber, probably shouldn't use her name, but I don't think anyone will know. This young lady loved bows for her hair. Okay, so I would come in to pick Andy up because I used to drive him to and fro and and I would come in and pick him up and there would be these days I would come in and this girl's head was covered with these little bows 
did you have a great day today or what? <laughs> Give me five, you know. And so as an outsider, I knew exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. And and not only did she have the same intrinsic benefit of getting a reward, that same feeling of accomplishment, she got to wear it forever. Mm-hmm. A food reward oh. goes away right away. Nobody knows you got it. Yep. Right. So Andy would come home with stickers all over his shirt. And as much as he was very proud of his stickers and you get the happy and really excited about it, um, I hated them because I wouldn't always get them off before they were washed. (laughs) So I learned to love goo gone. Yeah. Get the goo gone and get it out of the shirt. But there are so many other ways to reward a person and the behavioral consequence of a food reward is huge, particularly when overweight is an issue that a person is undoubtedly going to have to manage and deal with across their lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I, I see lots of people, I see lots of people and when good things happen, they, they, they have to have a party and the party has to have these things and they eat those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's a lot of, a lot of things that if we place a value on a, on a food, it will last forever. Food rewards. Never, never, no, no. Never, yeah, never, no, there no. You go. <laughs> um, the last thing I wanted to ask you today, Joan, is when do you recommend that somebody comes to visit like you, a nutritionist, <laughs> a dietitian, at what point, do parents need to think about the team members and think about adding somebody who's really specialized? It's different for the younger ones than it is for the adults. Um, for the younger ones, I really, 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 I am so thrilled to hear that you guys are trained in SOS therapy, for instance. I really, really believe that if you aren't at a a ground food texture soft food texture by the time you want to be included in school. So kindergarten, um, you need to be seeing somebody about how do I get this going? Um, because I have seen chewing and feeding be a reason used to try to exclude someone from a classroom. They're not safe. Um, and, and also just a reason to create trauma around the person. And I saw one young man who they put a sign up wherever he chose to sit. Oh, they had a, a moving sign, choking risk, um, you know, and all of those things are stigmas. So yeah. for the young ones, if you're not progressing in those textures, you aren't doing anything wrong. You just need some coaching. And honestly, when we did the, um, the healthcare guidelines for children with Down syndrome, I was really fortunate to be early in my Down syndrome career when those first guidelines were created. And I was pushing hard, hard, hard for everybody to have everybody to have a consult with a feeding therapist or a specialist. Not that they needed a feeding team. Mm -hmm. They needed coaching. And it's the kind of coaching we don't get as parents um, unless we know where to ask. Mm -hmm. So, Young ones, don't be afraid to ask for that kind of coaching from your OT, your your speech path, and a dietitian. And honestly, with the young ones, the OT and the speech path are probably the people to go to first over the dietitian, unless you have some weight gain issues, failure to thrive, all of those kinds of things. Um, but when it comes to, to chewing and feeding, I really like people to see speech paths and OTs who have experience in helping people move through that That progression developmentally, a developmentally based approach um, with a sensory component. 
for adults, for teens and adults. This is where it gets really hard. I think, I think most people um, in the world, <laughs> regardless of ability, can use a visit to a dietitian who's grounded in basic nutrition and, and sensibility and common ground. Um, finding someone who's sensible and willing to let you be an individual and have your own preferences is not always an easy thing. Um, nutrition has been set up to, we're not paid well. Um, for instance, the reason I work for, have a different job um, is so I can have health insurance because it's hard for me to get paid through typical medical systems for the kind of coaching that I do that, that they need. Um, so finding someone who is skilled in person-centered practices. Um, these days, if you're looking for a dietitian, you might want to use the word trauma-informed care, um, yeah. which is very similar to person-centered practices. It's just the new word um, mm-hmm. to look for, the new phrase. Um, but those people will be able to look at the behavior components a little bit better. Um, you don't necessarily, most of us who have, most folks with, with Down syndrome across the lifespan, teen and above, don't really need someone who's specialized in Down syndrome. Um, because you can take them my book <laughs> and they can learn. Everything they need to learn is in that book. No matter how old it is, it's very general and it will hit the, hit the, the key points. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want somebody who, who is good at health literacy, et cetera. Shop your dietitian. You don't have to go to the hospital dietitian. Shop your dietitian. I'm sure the Canadian Dietetic Association has the same thing the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has, which is a specialty group for, we call it behavioral health nutrition, um, and they can help you find people who have worked with folks with developmental disabilities. I would also, however, put out the caveat that if it's someone who's only worked in group homes, Mm-hmm. Um, or in congregate settings, I, I would go somewhere else. And that's only because congregate living has a whole different dynamic and they're probably sitting down and making menus and helping the group figure out how to meet yeah. the licensing standards as opposed to the individual work forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there are more dietitians who are doing this work um, because I meet them. There aren't a lot of us who do it in this way. Um, okay. So, but... But when you, when you have celiac disease, that's a really good time to go see someone. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are having uncontrolled weight gain, you might you can try and find someone, make sure that they're comfortable and that they will talk to your son or daughter who has Down syndrome and not you. Right. Um, that's a key point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you have reflux, I think that's a good time to go to, to look at things. Um, I'm trying to think of the other things. Um, I did want to toss in a thing. Um, anyone who's got a long-term use of medication, that has a, a, a dramatic impact on a person's particularly weight. So seizure medications, um, yeah. behavior, not beha- well, behavior medications, Risperdal, for instance, and, and I hear a lot of people using clonidine. Um, those two, particularly for people with Down syndrome, have, a, have an exponential effect on, on weight gain, um, more so than, than they are already known to do for everyone. Um, depression medications um, will do that as well. Um, and 
there's another one, but I, particularly those. And we use like Lamictal as a seizure medication. I see for a lot of people who experience depression, um, and it actually doesn't promote weight gain, but it can it can change things because they're feeling better. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah. But the long term use of medications, we don't look, we don't have. They weren't designed to be long-term use. Seizure medications, for instance, weren't designed mm-hmm. to be, so we don't have a lot of information about people who go from inf- infancy to adulthood. And Depakote and some others will put a lot of weight on people. When you know that you're going to use a medication for a long-term, for instance, sometimes Risperdal, the, the benefit is is greater than the risk. Yeah. Um, so you want to look at that. And I, I really encourage people to, to think about that and to know if they know that a medication is going to increase weight or eating, that they can change their snacking, yeah. to help with that, put out the things that feed their sensory needs. So for Andy, he was on Risperdal for a while and we just started putting out broccoli. That's how we learned how much he loves broccoli. And that met that sensory need that, that mm-hmm. chips would have done if, mm-hmm. and he, he chooses chips because he can find them quicker. <laughs> yeah. So we would put the plate of broccoli in the, in the refrigerator ready for him ready to, to grab. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some things along those lines. Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us today, Joan. It's been a real pleasure and you've given us a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. I hope I didn't overwhelm you. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're, we're self-prescribed nerds in yeah. anything DS related information. So we're just absorbing it and yeah. are excited. See, and and I'm all good with that. That's yeah. what I've turned into. It's like yeah. this, somebody said, what are you going to do in your retirement? You know, cause they, they expect you to say hobbies and mm-hmm. things like that. And I said, you know, I'm going to get back into my down syndrome world yeah. and, and participate in that. That's going to yeah. be my, my retirement. Um, because it, it is, and so much has changed. We've learned so much in the 30 years I've been a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's amazing to look backwards and realize just how much things have changed and how much better we can support good health. It's, yep. it's a great thing. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. The Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode. And let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a review. Be sure to visit the webpage for this episode at dsrf.org slash podcast for additional resources related to the topic. You can also follow DSRF Canada on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for updates from The Lowdown and the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. Want to know more about Down Syndrome? Class is now in session at DSRF's online learning portal powered by Thinkific. Users have called DSRF's resource brilliant, fantastic, and absolutely first class. Now, our educational platform puts these tools right at your fingertips. Start with our free introductory course Down Syndrome 101 or dive deep into the issue that matters most to you by enrolling in subjects like mental health or relationships and sexuality for people with Down Syndrome. Each course guides users through video, audio, and written resource to help you better understand and support the person in your life with Down Syndrome. 
all of the courses and subscriptions include access to the DSRF circle of support. Through this social community, users can interact and learn from one another and engage directly with DSRF. So, what are you waiting for? Class is about to begin, and there's an empty desk just for you. Visit dsrf.org slash thinkific to sign up today. Got questions? We have answers! 321's Canada's Down Syndrome magazine brings leading-edge expertise from Canada's top Down Syndrome professionals, as well as parents and people with Down Syndrome, direct to your inbox four times per year. Brought to you by the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and Canadian Down Syndrome Society. 321 tackles issues important to people with Down syndrome and their families at every stage of life. From mental and physical health and development, relationships, employment, independence, and more, we will equip you to explore whatever your future hopes. 321 Magazine, information and inspiration for Canada's Down Syndrome community. Download the latest issue and describe for free at dsrf.org slash magazine. The Lowdown, the Down Syndrome podcast, is a production of Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Learn more at dsrf.org and join conversation at DSRF Canada on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Lowdown is hosted by Marla Fodan and Hannah Mahmood and is produced by Glenn Hughes. The Lowdown theme music and George Dew was written and recorded by Rick Scott.